A recent podcast published on bmj.com talks to three clinicians who treat eating disorders. In it, they give advice to primary care doctors about how to spot signs that a patient may be developing an eating disorder, often in consultation with their parent, and some tips for referral. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, and in this podcast I'm talking to the mother and daughter authors of a What Your Patient Is Thinking article. Caitlin developed anorexia in early 2016, and it was her mother, Sally, who first brought this up with her GP. In this interview, we talk about the difficulty in recognising an eating disorder and the difficulty in talking to someone who's suffering from the cognitive effects of starving themselves. Sally, um, if we could start with you, because you're the one that brought this to the GP in the first place, what made you first think that something might be going on with, with Caitlin's health? Caitlin had, um, at the, from sort of the Easter time onwards of 2015, had decided that she wanted to make a difference and she wanted to change, um, or get trim up, get, get a bit fitter for the summer, have a bit of a beach body, wear a bikini, that type of thing. Um, and her longer term goal was that she wanted to do that ahead of her mock GCSEs which would do in the November and she would she it was a it was a goal of hers and she wanted to do that uh in order to get it done if you like prior to the mocks then mm-hmm. she could sort of settle down and concentrate that from the September onwards. So she started to um I suppose just be a bit more careful around what she ate, a bit more healthy eating, which was wasn't a bad thing at the time. Uh you know, teenagers have a habit of uh, sort of seeking out junk food a bit and things so so it was it wasn't that bad. I think it started off all very innocently um I think that then coincided with an increase in exercise um which was quite rigid uh quite set in stone with routines and things and and the two hand in hand were I was aware may not be a healthy combination um Caitlin sort of achieved her target weight if you like and trimmed up and and lost a bit of puppy fat but then then it continued in a more rigid way um, uh, to the point where it, where she was asking me to buy sort of diet meals or diet, uh, you know, sort of, you know, fat-free things, light um, brands, that type of thing. Um, so those are the sort of the behavioural signs. Um, in about the September, September is normally a very warm month and it was in that year as well, Caitlin started to feel really cold properly cold to the point of needing to wear a scarf. Uh, we had to get the double duvet out of the loft for her in September. Um, so I was very aware that her, she was clearly losing a weight visibly, but also mm. it was, it was coming out in other was, ways that she painful. was needing, that she was needing um, extra, extra layers and extra heat. She was also becoming a bit sort of, um, she was a bit more aches and pains, that type of thing. So I was just aware that Alongside that, her personality was changing too, and she was becoming a bit more withdrawn, spending more time in the bedroom, less communication, just generally less, less happy as well. Mm. Um, and all of those factors, alongside some weight loss that was noticeable by then, and had never happened before in all of her sort of life to that point, made me think I need to have a chat with a doctor about this, mm. and I need to do it on my own to start with because I think that will be the the best way so we can agree a course of action because I ha- I had concerns that she was developing an eating order I didn't know what kind or in what way but I had concerns about that at that stage. Mm. Now Caitlin if we can turn to you um, 
Now, in the article, you say that you didn't realise um, that you had anorexia because your BMI was still in the normal range. Um, but I was wondering, how were you feeling at the time? Did you feel yourself that um, that there was something wrong, something was going on? Or was it only sort of at the point of, of diagnosis and referral to, to CAMS that you kind of really saw that or felt that yourself? So sort of when um, when I... So what I sort of felt like... I mean, I, I, at the time, I remember not, like, knowing anything was wrong in, in the sense that I think frustration, I think, was a common emotion with me in those sort of months when I was getting more and more ill because I couldn't see why mum was not letting me eat a certain way and I would say, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing anything wrong, you know, I'm just, I'm just trying to make myself happier, surely you should be trying to respect that and help me in that kind of respect. Um, obviously clearly having no idea really what I'd had or you know even at CAMS for a little bit I didn't know that I actually I, I had a problem um, but probably just because of denial and constantly yeah just I, 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 I just I just remember feeling very I didn't have any idea really in my mind until somebody told me that there was anything wrong with what mm, I was doing mm. um, I think I, there were some times when I would sometimes think um I'm a bit confused why I'm feeling so sad at the moment, obviously, because I had not eaten and I remember doing loads of exercise and um, it, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't think anything was wrong, but I was very, ups, I suppose, upset because I didn't have a lot of energy inside me and I was really confused why I was so tired and so sad and mm. cold. It was cold was particularly, and I didn't know what was wrong, it was that kind of sense yes i think kate if i can just jump in caitlin had also um had recently had at school some sort of um uh, i think they call it pha ph phsc and had which had uh, seen a film which had described an anorexic person it, uh, that. i mean it i don't yeah i mean so basically i remember it wasn't in phsc it was actually in drama and we um actually funnily enough in year nine i think it was so i was about 14 did we did a whole um terms worth of um, somebody with an eating disorder and we had to watch clearly obviously a documentary about it and all these people you know in this were s severely skinny and clearly you know do you know what I mean like the stereotypical type of person yeah who was small so when you know the GP said look your BMI is this I just thought well I'm fine then aren't I like it's like I am actually fine like, there's no scientific way to prove that I'm not fine which means that I can carry on doing what I can do and you know the the fact is that I didn't know at the time is that my BMI would never you know it's not what did you say it's not the best way of toilet measuring yeah I think Caitlin's body body type um it's is, like is I think it's mesomorph um, and um, so she, she she was born and she's always followed a growth curve whereby her weight has relatively been higher than her than her height, um, and and that is just down to sort of bone density things like that of the genetic. So when when Caitlin lost weight, she she still didn't have the appearance of these tall, stick thin girls that walk around that have the opposite body shape, and yet in fact she was severely unwell by that stage. So it was all. It all came down to sort of BMI actually being a, not a good indicator at all, unless you look at the prior BMI. So I, I don't know what her BMI was prior to illness, but it was probably up, up about twenty six, twenty seven. So that as a as a drop was quite significant. 
Um, and, and that is the bit that really needed looking at. Thank you. Um, yes, it, it, it's, it's kind of, you can see the difficulty there that you, that you had in, in kind of identifying what was going on. Um, but Sally, when you did do that, um, when, as you said, when you, you had an idea that um, something was going on with Caitlin's health and, and maybe she did have um, some sort of eating disorder, you went to the GP. Um, yes, actually, uh, yeah, that's right. And actually, what I, I, I forgot to tell you in the first bit, which is very key as well, Caitlin stopped her monthly cycles from about the June. So by the time we went to the GP, she'd had full three months without, and I figured that was a, the right time to go. That coupled with the coldness and, every, and everything else and the other symptoms I mentioned earlier. So, um, yes, I decided to go to the GP. I decided to book an appointment with a female GP. Mm. I didn't... I didn't um, particularly have a, a sort of a need to see a specific female, but I, I decided a female we would be best for Caitlin because um, I knew that as a character she would feel more comfortable talking about body shape and diet and exercise, things like that, with a, with a woman. Mm. Um, as luck would have it, the, the GP herself was probably not far off my age and has got children, so I think she was, um, you know, maybe came across a, a, as a mum figure to Caitlin as well. Um, so I went, uh, when she did go to see her, so I went to see the, the GP, explain Caitlin's symptoms, um, and the GP said, to manage my expectations, that a lot of girls do go through this type of phase, at, at that point is what we called it, um, at this age. Um, in most cases, they recover and it is a short-term phase, um, but in some cases it, it can deteriorate. So we agreed that I would make a separate appointment with Caitlin, and that we would both attend the appointment with the same GP, but then that I would leave halfway through that appointment on the request of the doctor so that the doctor could chat to Caitlin on her own to see if there was anything going on in Caitlin's life that Caitlin wasn't telling me. Um, uh, because Caitlin was 15 at the time and not 16, um, I was able to attend the appointment and make the appointment. Had she been 16, I couldn't have done that on her behalf. Mm. Um, and I think life would have been quite different and quite difficult if, if Caitlin had had the choice around that. I mean, she willingly came to the doctor's appointment, but not initially. It took me a little while to persuade her. Um, so I think that was, that was the plan that we agreed. Mm. Um, and then um, when Caitlin did come to the, see the doctor, uh, the doctor, I wouldn't say she was um, harsh, but she, she, she was quite straightforward in explaining to Caitlin the dangers around dieting at the, her age around lost periods the on, first on, one on the second appointment this is the first appointment. yeah the, so she was quite she she told Caitlin that you know loss of periods can lead, can lead um to unfertility infertility later in life um and then the loss of weight can also lead to osteoporosis uh she talked about those things uh, you know was, the intention was to have a bit of a shock effect um which I think it possibly did short term, but but she also gave Caitlin the opportunity to ring her and contact her and go and see her at any stage on her own, um, yeah. uh, which which Caitlin didn't actually take up, but you know was there as a was there as a as a fallback if she wanted it. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, if we sort of uh, fast forward a little bit and and yeah. and talk about when Caitlin went to uh, the camp service. Um, mm -hmm. when she was actually referred there. Now, Caitlin, um, you said in the article that you, you talked a little bit about trust and the need um, for you to feel trust uh, with the psychiatrist that you that you were seeing in CAMS. Um, and I wonder if you could just sort of elaborate on that a little bit. Um, I think, well, when I was first admitted to CAMS, it was not 
clearly it was not a very willing thing that I did. I was still very, um, I suppose you could class it as depressed, very upset, very, very insecure of my body at this point, continually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't like being told, you know, 15 year old, I didn't like being told things that I did not want to hear. So I already went into that mindset thinking these people are not turning great. But when I started to come to more sessions and I started to sort of cooperate more, um, there was one time, well, actually there were several times when the doctors would use the phrase, um, like, I know what you're going through. Like, it's going to be, it was that one, wasn't it? Yeah. I know what you feel. Yeah. I know how you must be feeling. I know it. Don't like, don't worry. I know how you must be feeling. And I mean, I've never been an, openly angry person so I never would say anything but immediately from that point on I would switch completely off Mm. and just think to myself well they don't know how I'm feeling so how if you're if you're essentially at that point I was thinking if you're essentially lying to me right now what else are you lying to me about how can I trust you if you are openly lying to me and to my you know my parents when they're right there or my mum whoever was there you know, how can I trust someone who claims that they know how I feel when it's very obvious that they don't? Otherwise, they would not be speaking to me in this sort of way. And mm. I suppose sometimes I would think, why? Is it patronising? Like, is it... Are they trying to be comforting? Like, are they stupid? Like, I didn't... Obviously, looking back at it as a healthy person now, I think I was very unreasonable back like, back then. But in that time and moment when you are very vulnerable and you know very not I was not myself in any way um it I was it was very very easy for me to go you're somebody new and you've just said that to me and I'm not going to listen to you anymore mm. um you know um being open-minded I think was something definitely that was in jeopardy when I was ill um and yeah just 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 phrase and I don't think it was just that but I think it was I it's the word the words I know I know how you must be I know that this is frustrating I know that you're going to think you're going to be fat like not that kind of context but I know I know things that you are feeling or will feel and I just kept saying but you don't like you have no idea and I actually think one time I did say it later on the several sessions later in camps when I was a bit better I actually did say but you don't know, do you? You don't know how I feel. And then it's sort of me and it sort of got onto the idea that I can understand how you must feel. And I was a lot better being able to cooperate from then on because I just found it very hard to think, you know, to come to camp somewhere I did not want to be in any way and have people try and tell me that they know how I feel because at the time I just, they didn't. And I knew that. Yeah. There's two things to say there. Yeah, so, so when Caitlin felt able to, to explain her point to the, to the doctor at CAMS, they actually adjusted their language because they, they said, actually, Caitlin, you're right, we don't, we don't know exactly how you feel because we're not you. Um, and they adjusted their language to say things like, I will try to understand her. Or oh, I can or understand. I can, yeah. I can um, try, that sort of thing, or I will try. Um, and it was that language. But I think the other point to note is that what we as her parents hadn't appreciated until we knew the full scale of, of what anorexia is all about is that actually by the time she was we went to camps for that first time she was so severely underweight her her, her um for her underweight for her this is had lost a you know 20 percent of her body weight she had a 40 uh, 1.40 beats a minute was her heart rate i was checking her pulse in the night mm. because they were concerned that it was going to drop further at the night um her blood pressure was no 
low. She wasn't allowed to walk to school. She had to stay off school much of the time. That type of thing. Her, her, she was starving. Her, her brain was starving. It was able to maintain the cognitive ability to, to do the schoolwork. But everything else was, had disappeared. So any kind of ability to be rational, any ability to be yeah, open-minded went out the, out, out the door. So and it's, uh, from what I've learned since, actually, there have been studies done on, on, on people that have been in sort of concentration camp environments and, and the effects of the brain at following starvation. And this is very consistent with that. So she was, there's no way she was able to, to have a, a rational, decent conversation um, at that stage. And I think that was a, a learning, a big learning for us, but also it must be a learning for camps because they're not, they're not, tr they're not dealing with people who are able to comprehend that type of language or, or deal in a, or cross, you know, communicate in a way that they would expect of somebody. Um, and I think they, they, Kayla needed speaking to in a really clear, really concise, really simple way. Mm. Because she didn't have much memory at that point. Literally, she'd forget. She she doesn't have a lot of. There are actually some things you just said today that I had no idea that that happened, which just is yeah. Mad. So there was a, it was she you know she looking back she feels she missed out on a chunk of her life because it, it's all a bit of a blur and it was all a bit foggy, and it, you know so her brain was able to focus on those you know it goes back to the survival instinct she could she could survive um, if she had to but she but the periphery side of things the memory the, the uh, ability to to have a positive or decent attitude with others mm. went by the wayside. Thank you. I mean, there's a lot there that's lots of good points that doctors should take on board. Obviously, during Caitlin's treatment, uh, it's very important to have family support. Uh, Sally, did you feel that you were well involved in, in Caitlin's treatment? Yeah, I, I was. I was... I was Caitlin's primary carer, I suppose, was the official sort of word for it. Um, I was actively involved, daily, ongoingly involved. And, and I, that was through choice, but it was also through circumstance. I was, thankfully, I, I was self-employed self at the time, and I, am, I still am now, but I was there, and I was able to cut back on work accordingly. It just happened, you know, that I was able to do that, and which meant that I could focus on Caitlin. And, and when she was, well, for a couple of months, it was a period I had to be around. When she wasn't at home, she was at school, I had to be on call and available. I was invited to be involved by CAMS as much as, you know, we agreed was the right, was, as, as much as we sort of agreed was the, the appropriate amount. Again, because Caitlin wasn't 16, I really had a bit of control over that. Mm. And, I, and I wanted to be all of the CAMS sessions. Caitlin did agree to that and CAMS agreed to that as well. So we were all in, a, we were all in the right way and actually CAMS felt it that the sessions would be more uh, beneficial if I was there. I think absolutely it was totally the right call because, as Caitlin said, she, she didn't remember things. She she couldn't account for her, because the sessions were twice weekly to start with and then weekly, she couldn't actually account for her the way she'd acted or remember sometimes the detail of that. But I think also um, in terms of remembering, it's actually having a healthy per person looking at it from the outside and examining, because I can't exactly examine my own behaviour if I'm ill already, but also if... You know, it's very hard to examine your own behaviour, you know, everyday life, which I think why, why it was helpful that you were there. And um, I think from from my perspective, I, I had help outside of that. And I, the, the people we saw at CAMS, I knew I always had a hotline too if I needed it. And I, and I maybe had to contact them a couple of times in between the sessions mm. for advice to understand how to deal with a certain situation. Um, that type of thing. So I did have a hotline to them, and, and I would get a you know a quick reply if I needed one. We also had an open door policy um, 
with the hospital for a couple of weeks uh, because Caitlin had to get checked out that that if that if something happened she collapsed or we were more concerned about her again that we had to get her straight to hospital and we'd have this sort of straight in policy straight in pass if you like so we were um I did feel supported and I did feel involved and I um I'm lucky but I was quite assertive as well about that I, I'm not one to sort of hold back on these things and when it came to her her health and I you know it needed it needed that support Kate herself became quite dependent on me as a person um, and I, I couldn't have gone away overnight or anything like that at that stage um, and but it was it was the right it was the right thing for, for, for that to happen as a family yeah thank you um, now uh, Caitlin you this happened to you in um, 2016, and uh, you've come through, and and you're in recovery now. Um, but obviously, this is still something that's that's going to be affecting you. So, I just wonder what's what's your day to day life like, and and does this still hang over your head quite a lot? Um, I think day to day normal life. No. I think I've come a very, very long way, but definitely, definitely different from before I got ill, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. As in, like, I was very carefree about what I ate, what I did, like, exercise and things. I think now I'm a lot more just wary about what I am eating, but it's not... um, Day-to-day life is not a... When I'm happy, I'll eat, like, I'll eat absolutely fine. Um, However... It is, I think, what, I mean, personally, what I think excelled my eating disorder um, was what we've learned is that when I, when, especially with school life, when I, when I can't control um, aspects of school, when I can't, when I can't deal with, or when I get too stressed with school, there are, you know, some people deal with it very differently. Some people, you know, will do loads of exercise some people I know will eat quite a lot I don't eat and I really struggle to eat because I can't control anything else so I decide to call my control my food it's a very you know I don't realize I'm doing it at all and then actually when somebody just say you know have you eaten stuff today and I go actually no right mm. okay that's an issue mm. um I haven't had any major signs or actually really I don't personally don't think there's any been actual proper issues of relapse but it does it does it is in it is in my data life it's always going to be a part of me I'm always going to be thinking um you know all this food this food it took a while to get back to a normal diet and being able to I mean this this January um was my 17th birthday and I still remember actually then um, I found it quite hard to eat the foods I wanted to, and that was, I mean, that, that's quite, you know, that's a significant, well, how long was that after, I, that's, a couple of, that's several months after leaving CAMS. So we, we were at CAMS for a year, um, and then this was the January. Yeah, but like only, only really now it's sort of got back to to being able to eat normally or not regret it or think oh god I hate that ate that I'm gonna have to go and do loads of exercise Mm. right now obviously with mocks a levels this is a very crucial year for me there have been episodes this term especially when I have controlled my food or skipped meals or you know done simple or done loads of exercise or you know there are simple things that have changed but um I I think that's always going to be what I do the key thing is they haven't been in a routine 
way. So they've been ad hoc um, episodes rather than persistent or in or at the same time every day yeah. or, or or that type of thing. That's my job to keep an eye on that side. Clearly, it's harder um, as Caitlin's got older. She's going to be eighteen soon, um, but she's. Thankfully, a very honest and communicative person. Mm. So I can know that I can speak to Caitlin and ask her a question and be pretty certain she's not going to sort of try and pull the wool over her eyes. But also, to my mind, there are, there are other signs that I would be able to spot before she'd be able to spot them. I'd be able to spot her um, seclusion. If, 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 you know, if she was going down that route again, she would quickly start to disengage with friends. She would notice the cold she might not want to tell me but she would notice it and I'd notice that in her there would be other things that she would try and do a bit around um, controlling uh, ritualistic ways around eating which was something else you know the same sort of placemat the same time the same seat the same um, cup the same portion sizes mm. those sorts of things thankfully Caitlin's quite spontaneous now when she's happy as she says is that she's spontaneous she'll eat different times she'll eat different things Sometimes she'll have six small meals a day. Sometimes she'll have three normal size, yeah, different things. But when she's not happy or when she's she's concerned about work or stress, then it becomes a bit more restrained, a bit more controlled. So it's watching those ebbs and flows, if you like. But the main thing is now that Caitlin is really aware herself. And Caitlin, do you want to talk about that? I mean, you you, you remember how you felt in those days and, and the fact you don't want to go there again. Wait, which part? You, have, you remember how bad you felt when you yeah. were early? Well, yeah, I mean, there's... When I when I know... I don't know, obviously, immediately when I'm going downhill, if you like, or yeah. as in, like, if there's a day when I have not eaten well or just not eaten altogether um, or missed meals. And at the time, clearly, I think I'm making the right decision. Like, that's... I'm not deliberately making a wrong decision. We all, every single day, try and make the right decisions. But it's only afterwards, and ironically enough, when I actually eat some food, I can actually realise, actually, um, you know, that is not what you should be doing. Um, and it is, it's very, it's very difficult, because, um, in that kind of sense, because, you know, I suppose mum has to clearly, obviously, make sure that, especially in this time, you know, day-to-day -day life, in terms of exams, that I'm coping, but the amount of people that, do miss meals or do not eat is in in insane and so often i will use the thing well how come this pay person doesn't have their mum on their back the whole time and it's it's it is very difficult because it's almost sometimes like i'm not allowed to slip up mm. because of the consequences that it could lead to but um but no i know what it was like before and i think when i left cams i was constantly trying to tell mum like i'm not gonna be making a slip up at all anytime soon because I know what it's like to be in that place and there is no way at all I would happily go back into that place where I didn't have friends or I didn't I was never happy or I was banned from hockey I was banned from exercise I was not really allowed to go to school you know I wouldn't why would I want to go back to that place so there's always um the knowledge that I can't slip up in that kind of way but I don't yeah Yes. Oh, yeah, I think, I, think, I think that's right. And Caitlin has got a much more positive sense of body image now. I think at the time she became ill, there was, it was the whole social media thing was taking off. She got a, you know, she got a smartphone and, and there's a lot of social media aspect around that where she's got a much better balanced view on that now and understands that actually it's, it's not healthy when people of her age post these pictures of themselves 
side on, looking in a mirror with hardly any clothes on, looking really skinny, and only to get the sort of feedback that they do get with, which is, you know, you look amazing, you look gorgeous, all those things. That's just really bad in terms of encouraging um, eating disorder type behaviour. So I think Caitlin's much more aware of that now. Yeah. Um, and Tully, um, I mean, all through this, uh, this whole process started um, uh, with a GP appointment. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm just wondering, specifically for, for GPs, um, you've obviously come a long way. And, and at the beginning of that, that process, it sounds like there's much more uncertainty and, and worry for you. So I was just wondering, do you have any advice for GPs if uh, a parent like you comes and, and has concerns um, about their child, uh, what, sh- what they should do and, and how they should sort of approach um, talking about that? Um, I think all GPs, will, will, they will understand that if a mum comes or a dad arrives with concerns about their child, they're likely to be overly sensitive, perhaps overly emotional about it because it's, the, it's their baby. It's their baby that they're talking about. So there is a balance to be had with that. But I, what I was very grateful for was the GP listened to the behavioural changes that I was describing in my daughter, the before and after, because she didn't know Caitlin at all. She didn't know what she was normally like. So how could she, how could she um, you know, sort of gauge any reference point from that? But the GP listened to, to my description of her changed behaviour. Um, and that was, that was really important. She then looked at the facts of the matter and asked me to keep a, a diary. I mean, I knew what Caitlin weighed um, beforehand because um, I've got three children, Kate's got two brothers, and we every now and again, we don't actually forget, possess scales, but uh, as in weighing scales, but if we go to my um, Caitlin's grandma's house, she's got scales, We, you know, everybody jumps on the scales, and the boys and Caitlin have always been interested in what they weigh, and then we plot it on their little red baby book, if mm. you like, and so they can see their sort of growth patterns and 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 they're quite like comparing them against each other and seeing where they're at so i had a good grip on where caitlin was at prior to that then i then borrowed scales on the request of the doctor and managed to get her on them and that from that point we could see what she dropped to and then i tried to borrow those scales weekly and get her on the scales weekly so that we had a factual representation as well of the situation which went alongside the description of the change behavior and then the discussion with Caitlin, as she could, she could see in her in her appointment with Caitlin, the resistance or the lack of, you know, Caitlin was was pretty offensive by then. Um, and she could she could see that Caitlin might have been appearing to be listening, but it wasn't really going in. And uh, uh, that that was, you know, that so that would be my advice. I think just listen to the parents, listen to uh, the anecdotal side as much as the facts. And then and then use your, your, your knowledge as a GP to, to go from there and make the investigations that you can. Mm, thank you. Um, and Caitlin, sort of similarly, it sounded like when you first talked to the GP, um, she had some, some very sort of straight-talking conversations with you. Um, but you did say that you probably weren't in a place that you wanted to listen to these or even acknowledge that, that there was a problem. So I just wonder if you have any advice for GPs about, you know, uh, that initial talk, broaching that, that subject um, with someone who has an eating disorder. Um, I think, well, from what I can remember, because generally I'm not, <laughs> I, I generally can't really remember the very beginning stages, but what I can remember is, um, or really sort of the only advice I can really think of right now, I'm sure mum's probably got some others, because I must have, you know, I would have talked to mum afterwards, but um, 
not sugarcoating it, as it were. Um, I, I know it says in the article, I believe, um, that I didn't technically... I mean, I'm sure I would have obviously found out, you know, mum knew. I, I probably just wasn't aware because I was ill. Um, I had no idea I was anorexic until I casually messaged my mum one day because I was actually in the playground and I, this is really sad, I didn't have anyone to talk to. So I decided to text mum and I wanted to have a conversation with her. So I just said, mum, oh, actually, to be fair, I actually do want to talk to you. Something's bothering me. Um... At CAMS, they said the word anorexic and I think they said it wrong. Like, I generally had no idea at all until mum said, no, Caitlin, I'm not kidding, you are. You know, this mm. is not a joke. You are being, you're very ill. Um, and, I mean, I know that obviously it must be very hard for doctors or sort of unsure of what to say. And obviously every single patient is different. But especially for me, I just needed to be told, look, you are ill and you are going to head a very bad way if you continue down this road. Um you know, I mean, if you think back to my first GP appointment, you know, she told I'm I am definitely, you know, I'm one of those people that 100% is going to have children, hopefully, in the future. And being told that I may not be able to or because of the lack of um, my cycle, you know, and that still didn't stop me. Um, it's, oh, well, it didn't stop, you know, my anorexia. You know, it didn't, it's, you know, it shows how very, very strong and dominating it was in my life. Mm. And they weren't talking to me. Both people were not talking to me. They were talking to the anorex anorexia. And as soon as I heard the word "you are anorexic," it that went to me. That didn't go to the voice. That went directly to me. Everything hard hitting went to me. Mm. And I suppose everything sugar coated and everything that wasn't that big a deal, it went to that voice and that sort of voice. I suppose if you like, sort of went. Well, there's no point. Worry about that. You're fine. Then they haven't said anything otherwise. Um, so just making sure that um, that the patients are very much aware of how, you know, worse they can be. I'm pretty sure there are other patients that have been admitted to camps who've been a lot worse than me. And like, like I said, though, you know, patients, they're obviously going to be treated very differently. But for me, 100%, it was, I suppose, if anything could have been changed, it would have been... Look, I don't like. I suppose I don't need you to like me as a doctor. I'm. I want you to be better, and I don't. I you know. I my job is to make sure that you are well. I don't need to have a gold star at the end of our meetings. I just need to know that you are going to be fine. And whatever way that is, um, I suppose that's how it should be spoken about. That was the end of our official interview. And we stopped the recorder then. But in a continuing telephone conversation, Sally and Caitlin talked about some of the ways in which our changing relationship with media and images of ourselves feeds into the underlying issues which might lead to, or even perpetuate, eating disorders. And I think it's worth us including that. Uh, Apologies for the change in sound quality. In this world of social media and in this world of technology, that that has to be part of the, the sort of question behind motivations and triggers, if you like, for for, for young people, perhaps young girls more than young boys. But um, I think you have to gauge some sort of handle on what youngsters are consuming, how they're using social media to understand where they may be getting their sources of information from, which then inform their own perceptions around body image. Um, I think if, if doctors ignore that, 
and ignore the sort of the which, which you know for older doctors or anybody over probably 35 40 in in the medical profession you know it's not part of our lives in, in, in it, 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 sorry not i'm not a medic but it's not part of the older generation's lives in quite the way it is the younger ones mm-hmm. these days and we don't acknowledge or understand their need for social media um and their need for for, for their lives to be sort of you know seen online um in in that forum because it's an environment that we didn't have growing up ourselves so that has to be a key part and if they don't address that if they don't delve into that as part of their questioning and as part of their the sort of reasons that for learning how to treat treat patients i think they're really missing a trick and they will they will fail to address some of the sources and the root causes and also from a recovery perspective Kayla now understands why certain things are bad and she would she would actively if she saw a friend posting what she felt was inappropriate pictures of her set of themselves in a way that seemed to be um, soliciting positive feedback about their yeah. thinness or about their body image or about their about things that are just superficial really rather than the person she would actively want to do something about that now um, and that's a learning that she's gained through through the, the really through the hard way um, and I think that um, I think that as I say all all medics need to address this this element and it will only increase that you know that, that this the level of technology that we have is accelerating so fast that it will only ever get greater as a medium for potential harm and I suppose just linking on from that I suppose why I found it again very difficult for myself personally to accept was the fact that you know when people who I didn't tell people that I was ill but where the friends that I did have or the friends the people I did talk to um if either I was messaging or something some people I one of my friends actually ironically enough messaged me to say how brilliant I looked and wanted to know some diet plans I was doing and fitness regimes I was doing and things like that. So actually thinking about that, that person asked someone who was, you know, like very ill um, and that was apparently attractive. Mm. Being that size was, um, you know, was something that other people wanted to be like yeah. and um yeah. and and also it, what it was doing it was feeding the anorexia yeah it was, it was literally yeah. you know saying to the anorexia see this is right which was and the anorexia was then saying to kaylin look this is this is the way to be this is the way to go you're because doing the right I, thing thinking about it i probably did look like people wouldn't have any idea because other people like with other people that i speak to now that obviously seem to be there because i obviously find it very very fascinating to think about you know, what actually other people thought of me back then, because I don't have any recollection, really, of that time. And they said, well, yeah, we saw that you lost a lot of weight, but actually among people still don't know that I actually had a problem. They said, we just saw you lost a lot of weight, but you didn't look ill. You just looked fitter. You didn't look bad. You know, you didn't look underweight. We didn't worry about you in that kind of sense because you looked fine. And, you know, that it's just it's very upsetting to think about the fact that I would have you know, I would never, ever, ever be the size that stereotypical anorexic people are because that's not the way I'm built. And if you get somebody else my size that thinks that exactly the same as me and will not accept the fact that they're ill until, you know, they are that size, it's it's ridiculous. And just sorry, just the last point. Um, looking back at pictures now that I did take back then, I was very, very, very skinny and I had... Like, I remember at the time taking a photo and thinking, oh, my God, I need to go on a run when I get home because this is not fine. Mm. I, I, I think, oh, God, 
I ate today, I shouldn't have done that because then I wouldn't be this size. And looking back, I'm like, this is wrong. Like, I can't believe that. It just shows how, because I wasn't eating anything because I had no energy. And, you know, like, memory was, like, sort of, um, you know, an advantage, I suppose, to everyday life. And it's sort of, you know, will be taken completely for granted. But back then, that was completely taken away from me and my perception of body image and myself in particular was completely gone it's and I thought it wasn't it yeah it's and I, had, I looked at my I looked at myself in the mirror and saw someone like I know it says this you know people actually do see this and I didn't believe it, actually when people said oh you know when you're anorexic you see somebody completely different you genuinely do you see a fuzzier sort of yourself but you don't feel happy with the person that you are and that's really sad that people uh, I, I used to live like that every single day and think I was huge when I was seriously not and um, I think it's it's just 100% down to how technology and how our children's, you know, you know, I'm sure... Expectations. Our, yeah, I'm sure our, my, my, my little brother thinks that anorexic people are meant to be that size. I think every young child does. I think it's just yeah. younger generation's perception. Yeah. Which is obviously inaccurate. Yeah. 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 So Thank you're going to have to hold different things no. then. No, no, but, but I that think that would be a key medic. That was a key message, I think, for, for I think the medics. So. Well, not just for medics, for 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 everyone, for parents. Parents, and uh, parents. I mean, we. My husband have this slight dilemma. My husband uh, is, is a deputy head in school, and he's very part of his role is safeguarding, and, uh, and and within that comes social media and all of that impact on people. So he's quite up on it. So he was aware of the impact of that could that that could affect young people um and um not all parents are not all parents have the ability to know because they're not in, in you know have that sort of knowledge through their jobs and he was fortunate but others don't really care and they leave them to it um and that's dangerous i think there's you know there's a lot of a lot of stuff documented on all that and it, it will come it will come around mm. um and um i think it's 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 dangerous ground if parents choose to ignore what goes on in social media and on their children's phones You've been listening to Sally and Caitlin talk about their family's experience of eating disorders. And the What Your Patient Is Thinking article they have written, titled I Thought I Wasn't Thin Enough to Be Anorexic, is online now. That's all for this podcast. We'll be back next week with interviews from our Christmas edition. So join us then for some festive fun. In between Christmas and New Year, we'll have a few more education podcasts coming out so you can get in your festive CPD. Subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss out. There you'll find over 100 episodes, all available for free. If you want even more, then check out our full back catalogue. It's on bmj.com slash podcasts. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor. Thanks for listening.